It's a slightly difficult time to be a Jew. I mean, I could have said that 400 years ago, or 2,000 years ago, or 4,000 years ago, because it always seems to be a slightly difficult time to be an Israelite, a Hebrew, a Jew in this world. And I think that we have so much to be grateful for, so many of us, especially after that singular American holiday we celebrated yesterday, Thanksgiving. Um, I won't go into the history of Thanksgiving because it's kind of an awful um, history. It's a mythic holiday. Um, but if you just think about the ways that we are grateful um, and, and to take that sense of being thankful, thankful to one another, um, what do we have to be thankful for or grateful for or hopeful about as we pray for our homeland in Israel? And so, as most rabbis do, we turn to the Torah and we seek some wisdom. And as Scarlett and Leo will tell you, our B'nai Mitzvah from tomorrow's Shabbat, this week's Torah portion, Vayetze, is seriously dramatic and teaches us a lot about what happened, what's happening, and will happen in the Middle East. This week's parsha is the continuation of the story of our ancestors, and it offers us many clues as to why we are still struggling with Israel. The first clue is in the name Israel. Anybody know what the word Yisrael means? Yes, the one who is struggling or wrestling with God. It doesn't say the one who believes in God, is absolutely sure, even has a relationship with God. The name Israel, inside of it, is the word to struggle or to wrestle. As a quick reminder, our original patriarch Abraham had two sons, his son Ishmael with his Egyptian wife Hagar and Isaac with his Israelite Sarah. Many historians and biblical commentators point to the very origin of the Arab-Israeli conflict to the two sons of Abraham the father of Islam, Ishmael, and the father of our people, Isaac. Isaac goes on to lead the Israelites, and Ishmael is the father of the Islam, Islamic nation. And it's in that generation, in Lech Lecha, where God promises Abraham the land of Israel. Just a few weeks ago, we read these words. Go forth from your native land, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, and all the families of the earth shall be blessed by you. Later in the same parsha, God tells Abraham, raise your eyes and look out from where you are, to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west. I'm going to give you all of this land, everything that you can see, to you and your offspring, Leolam Va'ed, forever and ever. Walk around this land through its length and its breadth, for I give it to you. And Abraham moved his tent and came to dwell at the terebinths of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and he built an altar there. Now, according to the Numbers chapter 13, Hebron was founded in the 18th century BCE. It's our, our patriarch's primary home in Canaan and their burial place. It's very, very central. Canaan was also known later as Palestine and now as Israel. If we fast forward to the next generation, we find ourselves in this week's parsha in Vayetze. The portion begins with Jacob leaving Beersheba in the south of Canaan, a place where he is in grave danger, a place where so many Israelites, Israelis today, found themselves in the past two weeks in grave danger. He sets out for Haran. Jacob also has a brother, a twin brother, who he competes with from even before they're born. In their mother's womb, they are striving against each other. And when he is born, eventually, he steals his brother Esau's birthright with a pot of lentil stew, and then his blessing from their father Isaac, which results in Esau's plan to kill Jacob. 
Everybody get the sibling rivalry that is built up for years and years and years and years? At his mother's urging, Jacob flees from his family home to find a wife with his uncle's family in Haran. Esau, hearing that his parents don't want Jacob to marry a native Canaanite woman, I think he was a teenager at this point, he does exactly what his parents don't want him to do, and he goes to his uncle Ishmael and he marries his daughter Mahalat. So you get this. I should have a PowerPoint of this unbelievable family tree where the sons of Ishmael and um, Isaac are now, the son and the daughter are now married to one another. So they all married their cousins. So now the next generation is infused with the sibling rivalry and the anger from Abraham's sons, Ishmael and Isaac. And now it's traveled down to Jacob and Esau, and they've married their own cousins. It was a small community back then. So Honestly, this is really a point in the Torah, this is very modern commentary, where a little intermarriage would have gone a long way for our people. Seriously. It would have been very, very helpful at this time, but there weren't enough people in the tribe. So that's the story. Vayetze begins with Jacob's flight from Beersheba to Haran. His first night out in the wilderness, he has a very famous dream. A dream of a ladder which reaches from earth to heaven with angels climbing up and down the ladder. God in the dream is standing next to the ladder, and he says, I am Adonai, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. The ground on which you are lying I will give to you and all of your offspring. Your descendants will be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread out to the west and the east, to the north and to the south. All the families of the earth shall bless themselves by you and all of your descendants. When Jacob wakes up, he says, Surely God was in this place, and I, I did not know it. Rabbi Larry Kushner wrote an entire book about the reflections on this one verse. God was in this place, and I, I did not know it. You should read the book, and then come here on Monday afternoons, because that's when he teaches about this one verse. There are two things that are clear to me about the lessons from this week's parsha. One, the angels on the ladder are first ascending and then descending. I understand this to mean that angels do not originate in heaven. They originate right here on earth. I spoke during Rosh Hashanah about a concept called the Lamed Vavnik, or the 36 righteous individuals that are holding up the earth and preventing it from destruction. And my Rosh Hashanah message was that the spark of the Lamed Vavnik is embedded in each person. There's not just 36 righteous people that are upholding righteousness in the world, but each one of us has a spark of the divine, of something that will prevent the destruction of the world. If you are wondering, just look around you, there's definitely a few angels. Look around you. There are some people that are angelic in this very sanctuary. You might be sitting next to one of them. So in this room, if you're holding the spark of Alam and Vavnik, or you yourself are an angel, you bear the responsibility to protect the world, to uphold the righteous, and to literally be la'or hagoyim, or a light to the nations in this world. Number two, Jacob's realization that God was in the middle of the wilderness with him when he was far away from home, all alone, and in fear of his brother's wrath, in fact, in fear for his own life, reaches forward to us today. And as we like to say, the Torah is not what just happened a long time ago, but it's still happening. God is in this place, and sometimes we, we don't know it. Our sacred text, the Torah, reveals that God gave our people the promised land, clearly and simply. The city of Hebron is even mentioned as our dwelling and burial place, and today the city of Hebron is in the West Bank. It is one of the most violently contested areas between the Palestinians and the Israelis. The one missing piece in our Torah each time that God mentions the promised land to our ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, is this. I'm giving you this land, all of it, forever and ever. 
And God does not once say in Genesis, and by the way, there are other people already living in the land. There's no roadmap in Genesis for how to live in peace with our neighbors, not one. In the past two weeks, we have witnessed the escalation of violence in Israel and Palestine in a way that we have never witnessed it before. Half of all Israelis have been living in bomb shelters. Hundreds of thousands of Israelis have been forced to evacuate their homes. And by now, almost 1,000 rockets have been launched by Hamas in Gaza at Israel. On the other side, if you pay any attention to the news from the Arab countries, from Egypt, if you listen to the radio or watch Al Jazeera on the web, you'll hear a totally different perspective, obviously. You'll hear of another round of Israeli destruction, of wanton bombing and the murder of civilians. And then you will read about the squalor that the Palestinians in Gaza are living in. And you will hear a lot of anti-Semitic, anti-Israel, and anti-American rhetoric and propaganda. Like our ancestors Isaac and Ishmael, and Jacob and Esau, and many of their children who are now trying to kill each other, the stakes are much, much higher today. The fighting is no longer tribal and on the ground. It's in the air, and it involves things like Iran and nuclear weapons. And there's no question in my mind that this Arab-Israeli conflict today, what we're seeing, this land and the people bombing at this point in history, it has escalated not because of the Palestinians and the Israelis, but because of us and Iran. Because of us, the United States, and us, Israel, and the relationship to Iran. It's a terrible feeling for us in this country, I believe, to feel so powerless in the face of so much bloodshed. This ceasefire for 48 hours is only temporary. But what I know is that many Israelis who do not support the Israeli government and many Palestinians who do not want to have a terrorist organization like Hamas leading them would like to have peace. I believe that most Israelis and Palestinians want to be at home, in their own home, eating pita and falafel and hummus with their own families. Most Israeli families don't want their children in combat, and the Palestinian families don't want their children to be suicide bombers, and they don't want to live under the rule of Hamas. I believe many Palestinian families would like to live under a government like Israeli's government, the only democracy in the Middle East. Granted, some Israelis want the Palestinians wiped off the face of the earth, and some Palestinians will always like all of Israel dead. And many of the Arab nations are clear and explicit that Zionism and Israel are the stated enemy. You're waiting for the good news, right? Just because the Torah gives us no geopolitical roadmap for peace between our people today, 4,000 years later, that doesn't mean that the Torah doesn't have any answers. In our story, do Ishmael and Isaac or Jacob and Esau ever see each other again? Do they spend the rest of their lives embittered, fighting, trying to get back at one another for the injustices they suffered? No. When Abraham dies, Ishmael and Isaac, who have been separated, come back together to Hebron, finally as brothers, to bury their father in a holy place. An ultimate act of tshuva, of reflection, and finally of reconciliation. And Jacob, who was on the run from Esau, it's in next week's portion, Vayishlach, where Jacob and Esau are reunited in a very emotional reunion. And like their father and uncle, they're reunited, have a reconciliation, and then they separate. And they go to different parts of the Holy Land. The same land, but different neighborhoods. The land that God promised our ancestors and that has been a piece of the homeland of Arabs and Jews for the last 4,000 years. So I want to read you a little bit about the hope from one of the projects that our community supports in Israel called, of all things, Project Hagar. 
Who is Hagar? Ishmael's mother. It's a Jewish Arab school, and it's a beautiful letter that the executive director um, has written. It's a bilingual Jewish Arab school where they teach in both Hebrew and Arabic to Israeli and Arab children in Beersheba. And it's one of the grantees of the Jewish Federation. Dear friends of Hagar, over the last six days, a new wave of violence had flooded our region and wounded our routine. The usual Hagar sounds of children's laughter in our school kindergartens and daycare, the vivid conversations of our community members in both Hebrew and Arabic have been replaced by the frightening sounds of sirens and explosions. All schools in Beersheba, including ours, have been closed, and Hagar's children and parents, along with all of the families of the Negev, are spending their days and nights in bomb shelters and protected spaces. I am so proud and touched to learn that this wave of violence has not weakened us. And on the contrary, during the last six days, Jewish and Arab friends and families are encouraging each other between the explosions, offering to host one another away from the rockets at their family homes in the north of Israel. Jewish and Arab teachers are reaching out to Jewish and Arab children. Arab and Jewish children are making an effort to be in touch with one another if they have access to a phone or email. One of our Jewish parents called and told me that she and her family, including their newborn child, were invited to spend the weekend away from the rockets with an Arab family in the northern Arab village of Sakhnin. And as she and her family drove back, she thought about the fact that before her family joined Hagar, it would have been unimaginable for her Jewish family to seek refuge from rockets flying down from Gaza into Israel in an Arab village with an Arab family. Now more than ever, Hagar's community is proving its commitment to create a different reality, one where people refuse to define themselves as enemies, but as friends struggling to find common ground. Thank you for your support of Hagar. Le shalom, ma salam, with peace, Hagit Damri. That's pretty helpful. It's like a grain of sand on a beach of terror. But there are more grains. The point is that we need to be supportive of peace on the ground in Israel. The first Bedouin Israeli Council General, the Associate Council General, came to San Francisco about eight years ago. His name was Ishmael Kaldi. And he worked as a Bedouin for the Israeli consulate as a diplomat representing Israel. And he just sent me a picture that said, Efsharut, it is possible of a little boy wearing a kafia, an Arab boy, and a little boy wearing a kippah with their arms around each other, walking down a path. So there are moments and there are places for us to be supportive. Things like the New Israel Fund that has already emergency relief, the reform movement. Anywhere where there's relief, I believe, that's promoting peace, it's where we should be. A decade ago, in a cyber chat room that housed a minion. The question was posed whether or not the minion counted if the members were only connected through the internet. Could people all over the world count 10 Jews in order to say a prayer, Kaddish? My answer back then, 10 years ago, was absolutely not. They're not in the same place at the same time, so they can't say Kaddish. It doesn't form a minion. But 10 years ago and 10 years of technology is a very long time. Today we live in a world where someone calling themselves anonymous can hack and take down 600 Israeli websites in a moment. If that's the current reality, then the Katusha rockets of yesterday are meaningless. And so, what we're asked to do is to pray all around the world together. We pray for Israel's ultimate safety and security, but more than anything, we pray for ultimate peace. We pray that the leaders of our countries will find the path, will use their power for good, 
will silence the voices that monger war and bloodshed and uplift those willing to reach out olive branches to one another. This morning, from Israel, the Reform Israel Fund streamed live a service that went all the way from Hadera, where a brand new Reform Synagogue was born just a few weeks ago, into bomb shelters. And the note this morning at 7.30 said, prayers will begin Friday, November 23rd at 17.30 Israel time, 15.30 London time, 10.30 New York, Toronto, LA, 7.30 AM, and Sydney, Australia at 2.30 AM. And so at 7.30 this morning, Jews all over the world came together and they sang Osei Shalom. Now, I have to admit, I had a Thanksgiving turkey hangover. And I did not make it to the Shabbat this morning at 7.30. But what I heard when I went back and checked on in is that in LA and in San Francisco and in Seattle and in New Jersey and in Morocco and in bomb shelters in Israel from Hadera, our own Rabbi Rick Block, the head of the Reform Movement, was there praying with Jews for peace in that region. And so now, 10 years later, I'm a much older and wiser rabbi. And if you ask me if that was a real minion, I would say that was a real minion. Isaiah teaches us they will beat their swords into, share, into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take a sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. It's not just something for the future. A lot of you have your children here right now. And if you look at them, Think about the world that they're going to inherit and think about what it will mean for them in 10 or 20 or 36 years to talk about Israel, our homeland. Shabbat Shalom.